The scripture reading for this morning is from a selected passage of John chapter 20, verses 3 to 23. Verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. For the last several months, we've been looking at the gospel according to John. And what we've been saying is that there's really no one better person to tell you about somebody than their best friend. And that's who John really is. Now, in John chapter 19... Jesus had been crucified, he died, and he was buried. He really died, but he rose again from the dead. And the last time that Jesus Christ saw his disciples, their tails were between their legs, they were denying him, they were deserting him. What's the first thing he says after the resurrection? He sees Mary first. Why doesn't he say to Mary, go and tell those former friends of mine those deserters who wouldn't even stay up with me to pray in my moment of greatest need, who didn't stand with me during my hour of greatest danger, those miserable people who deserted me, you better tell them to come and they better repent and they repent, they better explain themselves, they better be ashamed of themselves. Instead, in verse 17, he tells Mary, Go and tell my brothers. And when he shows up in front of the disciples in verses 19 to 21, he appears in front of them, not a single word of rebuke, not a single word of rebuke. He knew they were beating themselves up inside. So instead, in verses 22 to 23, he says, receive. Christmas, we are, from, from the moment you're a child, you know, Christmas is about receiving. It's about giving gifts. It's about receiving gifts. Jesus Christ is saying, I am the conquering king. When a king conquers over an enemy what he does is he, in the ancient times they would bring the spoils of victory along with them and uh what he does he he hands out these spoils of victory to the people what jesus is saying is i want you to receive the spoils are always proportional they're, they're always commensurate with with uh, they're always relevant to the victory itself it's why christmas is so important jesus is coming his arrival 
Every one of the gifts are a direct result of his victory over sin, his victory over death, his victory over evil. Jesus is coming, his arrival, his humble arrival in a manger, but it's, but it's kingly and it's victorious. There are five things, very, very quick, five things that we're going to see in this passage about the spoils of victory, what we receive. We receive faith. We receive access. We receive a name. We receive meaning. And we receive power. Faith, access, a name, meaning, and power. The first thing we're going to see is faith. At the end of the chapter, verses 30 to 31, printed in your bulletin, the author says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples. They're, uh, most of them not recorded in this book. But these are written. In other words, these are given to you that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. The gift, which is the basis of all other gifts, is what? It's belief. It's faith. It's how you unite to Christ. It's how you experience the victory of the king. In other words, faith in Christ, it's not something that you work up to on your own. That's what I used to believe. It's not true. Faith is not something that you work up to on your own. It's a gift. We receive this gift. Now, I'm not talking about general faith. Everybody has faith in something. Everyone has faith in something. Everyone believes in something. Think about it. Whenever you choose a major in college, whenever you make career decisions, whenever you choose to hire somebody, to be on your team, whenever you get married, getting married, think about it. How do you know who's the right person for you? First, you've got to hear from credible sources. You start to inquire about people. You get opinions about a certain person. Next, what do you have to do? You have to validate those opinions. You check your references. You validate. You, and, and when everything checks out, what do you do? You go on a date. You start to go on dates. And what do you do in these dates? You share. Sometimes you argue. Argue is all about information gathering. You argue, you fight, you ask questions, you get responses, you gauge responses from the person. And it's your way of eventually, what are you doing? You're arriving at a a rationally convinced mind. You're arriving at a conclusion, but at the end, what? You can't know that he or she is the right person just by examining, just by checking references, just by interpreting data. You can't know that. In the end, you won't know unless you actually commit to that person. And that takes a certain level of trust. It takes a certain amount of faith. You have to step out. You have to become vulnerable. You have to absorb. You have to expose yourself, become vulnerable, absorb a certain amount of risk. And that's the sequence. The references, the questions, the answers, they can bring you to a certain amount of probability. But the commitment to trust, the faith, the exposing of yourself, that's the only way that you're going to be certain. Now, some people here, they'll say, well, I can't really commit until I know. I can't really commit until I know. If you really know, as you walk through life, most of our important areas of life, in the end, you really won't know until you actually commit, until actually you sign. Some of you, the reason why you don't know, even now, is because you haven't committed. You haven't committed. But I don't want to relinquish control. I don't want to give up. I don't want to surrender. No act of trust, no act of commitment comes without losing some amount of commitment, some amount of control in your life, some amount of risk in your life. Ask any married couple. You can't get married without losing some or most of your control. And if that's the case with some of the most finite, intimate relationships in our lives, 
then it's all the more going to be the case with the most intimate and infinite God in our lives. And this is why Jesus gives it to us. Because we don't have that kind of faith to surrender. We don't have that kind of faith to submit. But once you receive this, you're going to be able to receive all the remaining spoils of the victory in Christ. The second point goes like this. It's access. Early in the first day of the week, kind of a summary of this passage, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb. The, empty, the, the tomb of Christ. And she notices that the, that the stone that covered the tomb, that seals the tomb, was removed. And so she runs and she tells Peter and John that Jesus' body has been taken away. So what does Peter and John do? They, they run to the tomb. And as soon as Peter enters, he sees the strips of linen and the burial cloth for Jesus' head. It was lying there. It was folded up. And John actually goes in. And when he saw, he believed. But Mary, she stayed by. She stayed near and she's weeping. And while she's there, she even sees two angels. And the angels ask why she's crying. And she says, because they've taken my Lord away and I don't know where. And and Jesus, Jesus calls her out by name, Mary, and then she knew. Now, think about this, right? Uh, She sees these angels. She sees Jesus. Jesus asked why she's crying. She thought Jesus was the gardener. And so she thought they'd taken Jesus' body away. It wasn't until Jesus calls her out by name. He says, Mary. Then she knew. But verse, verse 17, Jesus says an interesting thing to Mary. Mary tries to grab a hold of Jesus. And, and Jesus says, don't touch me. The actual translation here, the, in the actual language, he says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Don't touch me. Now, why does he say that? Now, what I thought was that what Jesus meant was that he was saying, I have a new body now. You can't touch me. I'm glorified, so you can't touch me, right? Uh, Because it it could be disastrous. I'm glorified. I'm holy. You have to be very, very careful. But that really can't be the case because later on in this very passage, later on when he sees Thomas, what does he say? He says, see me, touch my hands. Touch my side. He says, touch me. So why does he say to Mary, who's this close, intimate friend of his, don't cling to me? Mary... When he's, really, really what's going on here, she sees Jesus and overjoyed. She says, you're back. I'm never going to lose you again. I'm never going to let go of you. That's the language there. And, and what Jesus is saying is this. Don't hold on to me until I've ascended to the Father. Then, any time, any place, anywhere, even when I'm not physically present, you will be able to cling to me for all time. What he's saying is, I'm not like Lazarus. I'm not, I'm not resurrected like Lazarus. Who's, I'm raised into a new body with new dimensions. And now you're going to be able to have full access to me. You're going to be able to cling to me even when I'm not present physically. Now you're always going to have me. You're always going to be able to embrace me. You're always going to be able to touch me. You're always going to be able to know me. One of my favorite hymns, one of my favorite hymns all time, The words go like this. Hast thou not bid me seek thy face, and shall I seek in vain? And can the ear of sovereign grace be deaf when I complain? No still the ear of sovereign grace attends the mourner's prayer. Oh, may I ever find access to breathe my sorrows there. You know what that means? What this hymn is saying is that you can seek Jesus anywhere. Anytime, no matter what shape you're in, you're always going to be able to embrace him. 
when you're in the midst of desiring something, when you're in the midst of running, when you're complaining, in your sin, in your crying, in your pain, in your hurt, in your brokenness. That's prayer. That's what prayer is. And what that means is that Christ is somebody that you hold. Jesus is somebody that you embrace. Jesus is someone you're supposed to know, you're supposed to see, someone that you're supposed to touch, even in the dark times, especially in the darkest times. You know, King Herod, in the, uh, in the whole uh, narrative of the birth of, birth of Christ, King Herod was the anti, right? He's the antithesis, and he's seeking to kill Jesus. He's looking for, to kill Jesus. And, and what's going on here is here, while he's seeking to murder Jesus at his birth on one hand, you have these wise men. And why are they wise? Because they're seeking, even in the midst of the strife, they're seeking to see Jesus, they're seeking to know Jesus, they're seeking to worship Jesus. Put that another way. When you pray, do you sense the presence of God helping you, even in your prayer? When you pray, do you sense the presence of God comforting you, healing you, strengthening you? Don't make Jesus abstract in your life. Let Christmas, let the coming of Christ, let the arrival of Jesus, let the victory of Christ shape you, let it change you, let it shape your life. You know, faith, we all know, faith, we always say, is greater than knowledge. But it's also really greater than a personal emotional experience of faith. Faith is really a personal experience of the rational truths about Jesus that shape you, that change you. That's what faith is. To know Jesus means to grab him. To know Jesus means he has grabbed a hold of you. Christmas is the presence of God here, anywhere, everywhere in your life. That means you have access, full access. So you have faith, which is a gift. You have access, which is a spoil of victory. Third, you have a name. In verse 16, Jesus calls out, he says, Mary. Mary has a name. That's remarkable. Mary has a name. Mary doesn't even recognize Jesus until Jesus calls to her. In other words, Jesus knows you before you even come to recognize who he is, before you even come to know who he is. When you first come to church, I'm pretty sure that when you first come to church, you're not even sure what you're looking for. When you first walk into a church, in most cases, you're not even looking for somebody to save you. You don't even know what that is, right? Most of us, every week, every week, most of us are running from God, in our own subtle ways. We're hiding from God in our subtle ways. We're not thankful for God. We're proud. We're not even looking for God. But Jesus knows us. Jesus calls us by name. Most of us, we're weeping because of something that is absolutely circumstantial in our lives at the present moment. And we think because of this, we've lost all things. Jesus calls us by name. He knows. In chapter 10, he says, I know my sheep. I call them by name. How do you know who you are? How do you know who you are? Western philosophers will say, It's through what you do. It's through what you pursue. The pursuit of individual desires and those desires and those accomplishments actually define who you are. Eastern religions and Eastern community, Eastern faith, Eastern philosophers will tell you that it's actually through your community. Your community will define who you are. Your family structure will define who you are. In verse 16, Jesus says, Mary. There's the individual. There's the individual. There's the uplifting of the dignity of the individual. She calls her out uh, by name. But then in verse 17, what does he say? Go to my brothers. There's community. There's family. On one hand, the gospel is a deep personal experience that shapes you. 
But on the other hand, it's a community experience. It doesn't become made full or true or real until it comes into the context of a community, which means to love Jesus. When you love Jesus, absolutely biblical, all through Scripture you see this. When you love Jesus, you will love his church, you will serve his church, you will care for his church. That's what it really means to be a part of Christ. He is the head, we are the body. We are integrated. Now, look, if you try to define yourself just by what you do, Western philosophy, just by what you do, just by what you pursue, what's going to happen? You're going to lose your family because your hours and your time and your preoccupations is poured into what you do because I got to get these things to define myself. So what happens is you lose your family. You lose the people you love. You lose community because you become the priority of yourself. And you know what happens as a result? You become tired and you become competitive. I have to win. You fight. You become jealous. You become angry and bitter when you lose. You become proud and arrogant when you're successful. You actually start to lose, become less of who you are by pursuing who you are. Do you see that? But if you try to define yourself just through your community, on the other hand, what happens? What's going to happen is you're going to be tired. You're going to lose yourself. You're going to give up your pursuits, your personal desires, and as a result, what happens? You become tired, you become competitive, you become angry, you become jealous. Why? Because of the pressures, the expectations, the people, the, the, I, I still have to be on top. It's still a rat race. I still have to become more approved, more acceptable. Do you see that? Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, lose yourself for me and the gospel. Give up your selfish pursuits and give up, on the other hand, your need to be approved. The reasons why we often need to be successful, the reason why we often need that relationship in our lives, the reason why we need to be wealthy, the reason why we need to get that promotion, all those reasons are really because we're trying to save ourselves. Mary finds herself. Now, if you think about what's going on here, Mary finds herself in the loss, in the brokenness, She's not sitting here and saying, what now? What next in my life? What am I going to do? That's not what she does. She doesn't sit there and say, what's my future going to hold? What do I do? I need to figure this out. That's not what she does. Mary, in her brokenness, in her loss, she's not scrambling. She's just trying to find Jesus. She's just trying to find Jesus in this loss. She's doing everything wrong. I mean, her theology is totally off. She thinks Jesus is dead. She's looking for a dead Jesus. And because she's looking for a dead Jesus, she thinks this gardener is actually her enemy. Where have you taken him? That's what, that's what she says. But in actuality, this gardener is the friend that she's been looking for all her life. She's talking to angels. She still doesn't understand. That's us. We're often overlooking God because of our present reality because of our present suffering, when all along God is using those present realities and the present sufferings to point us to Christ. Friends, this isn't cold comfort. God, we, we often overlook God in the midst of our suffering. This is not cold comfort. I'm a sufferer. I'm a sufferer. Suffer greatly, all time, even in the past week. Tremendous suffering. If you're looking for a way, if you're looking for comfort, if you're looking for healing, Christ is present, and he calls you by name. That is personal. Mary's doing only one thing right, and that's all she needs. That's all she needs. Amazing. She wants Jesus. She's looking for Jesus. He's not satisfied until she's found Jesus. What does that tell you? What that tells you 
uh, what that tells you, I mean, and, and what, you know, she is, she's just searching for Christ. That's not about intelligence. That's not about being put together. It's not about having this great moral record. But you know why? Because Mary wasn't smart. Not that day. She was an emotional mess that day. She was considered an outcast, or really a horrible record. But what does it take? She's looking to Jesus. She's even looking to Jesus to the point of tears. She's, she's a mess, but she doesn't give up. And what does she receive? Jesus knows her, and Jesus actually sought her first. Jesus finds her first. The person that she needed all her life knows her name. Christmas is about having a name. What is a name? Name, having a name is about having an identity. In those days, uh, it meant validation. Your name, your full name was your validation because everybody, it's not very different than our day today. Everybody needs people outside of us. We're built in such a way that we all need validation on the outside. We all need somebody outside of us, someone who says to us, you are okay. You are beautiful. You, I see you. We try to get our careers to name us. We try to get our wealth to name us. We try to be with somebody who's beautiful because if I'm with someone beautiful, then I have a name. That's going to define me. And so as a result, we're using our bosses. We're using our coworkers. We're using our friends, our spouses, people we are deeply intimate with. We're even using our children. Why? Because if I have good children, that is my validation that I've succeeded, that I've arrived if I have that because that's what I need, the validation that I need. But the thing is, all these people, they're broken. They have needs too. They cannot possibly fulfill and fill you in a way that you need, in the way that we all need. Jesus Christ is all-sufficient, Jesus Christ, no needs. He says, I love you. I know you. I have chosen to wrap my happiness around your joy and happiness to the point where he would leave everything that is of honor to him and condescend into the earth to be with us. That is an amazing truth. That is an amazing truth. What he's saying is, because he's saying, I know you to the depths of your sin. I know your suffering. Every tear. In Revelation 21, he says, he will wipe away every tear. Jesus Christ will personally wipe away all the tears from our eyes. He says, I, what he's really saying is, I, will, I went to the depths for you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I know you. I love you. I've chosen to need you. Unbelievable. We need somebody to validate us. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. That means I'm staking my life of eternity on my love for you. He doesn't say, when he calls out to Mary, he doesn't say, come here. Now you will serve me. Come here, you slave. You're lucky that I even remember who you are. You are a prostitute. You are worthless. Actually, what he says is, Mary, woman, He calls her a woman, there's your dignity. He lifts her up. There's the dignity. He says, I know you. You have a name. Women in those days, they never had a name. In those ancient times, a woman's testimony wasn't even admissible in court. Here it says, you have a name. Very specific, I'm seeking you out. Christmas is about God making a a conscious choice because we cannot go to him He comes down to us. He condescends into our lives to rescue us, 
To rescue us, to love us, to save us, to heal us. There's your comfort. That's a spoil of victory. You have a name. Now, the fourth point is that you also, with that name, you have meaning. You have mission. You have purpose. Verse 16, Jesus says, Mary, what comfort, tremendous comfort. She has a name. But then immediately, verse 17, go. Go to your brothers. Go and tell them. Right? That's what he says. And she does go. In verse 18, she goes, she tells them. Verse 19 to 21, when he appears in front of the disciples, what does he say? They're overjoyed. He says, peace. What comfort. What joy. Then what does he say? Verse 21, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. This pattern exists throughout the scriptures. There's a saving, there's a blessing, but then there's a commissioning and there's a sending. There's a rescue, then there's a sending out. You know what that means? It's good to approach Jesus because you want healing, because you need help, because you want acceptance, because you know in him there's forgiveness. It's, it's incredibly important to do that. If that's why you're here, it's great. This is the place to do that. Anything that you want, anything that you need can be found in Jesus. Christmas is about exactly that. The only real gift that we need is Jesus Christ. But what happens after Jesus becomes your healing? What happens after he becomes your help? What happens after he becomes your acceptance? What happens after he becomes your forgiveness? You start to tend to the needs of other people. Your heart opens up. We talk about the personal experience that shapes you. Your heart opens up. Jesus never calls you in to heal you without sending you out to become a healer. Jesus never comes in to transform you until before he sends you out to become a transformer. Jesus never comes in to advance you before he sends you out to advance others. In fact, the heart of Christianity is what? Your advancement at my cost. That's the heart of Christianity. That's the heart of faith. He never comes in to heal you without first sending you out to be a healer. That gives you purpose. Your pain may break you. This is what that means. Your pain may hurt you and it may break you. Your suffering may bring you down. You say, I've hit rock bottom. This is the lowest point. But as you heal, the pain actually empowers you. And through that brokenness that is healed, you begin to help others. Other people who are sharing the same pain. You develop a dimension of your life that you never had before. You begin to grow in a wisdom that you never had before. You begin to have, you acquire a compassion that you never had before. You start to have a heart that breaks, a burden for people, a love that you never had before. That is the Spirit of God working in union with you. That's meaning. That's purpose. You say, now my suffering starts to make sense. Some of us, and this is not to denigrate any of our suffering. We experience things in our lives sometimes that we will never be able to explain. And yet, God will still heal you. You may never understand why, and yet God will still heal you. That's hope, that you can find healing, no matter how great and deep the suffering is. You may not have tremendously greater understanding in the end. There are some things that we suffer that we may never have true answers to. Why? But it still makes sense. There will be meaning there's going to be a greater dimension in your life. Your scars will propel you. You know, towards the end of the book of Revelation, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul the apostle explains that uh, 
your scars. You're going to bear scars. We're going to be like, we're going to bear the image of the man from heaven. We're going to bear the image of Christ. When Jesus appeared in glory, you notice he still had scars. We, we identified him. Thomas recognized him through his scars. Your scars have meaning. They will have purpose, even your scars. Faith is to sense the presence of God, Right? It's to know God. It's come to believe. It's a gift. To have access to God, it's a gift. To have an identity, a name, it's a gift. Now you have purpose. Your scars even make sense. God has used the things that, have, that you thought were there to destroy you to actually increase you, to bring you greater joy, greater peace. If you haven't experienced that, you actually may not know Jesus. You actually may not. How do you get it? How do you get this? That's the power, the fifth point. Jesus says in verse 22, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. What he's saying is, I'm going to give you my power. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. My power is going to enable you to have faith. It's going to compel you to surrender. It's going to get you to know me intimately. It's going to open your eyes. It's going to secure you an identity. It's going to give you a name. Now, you know, if you think about it, uh, he says, I'm going to give you meaning. I'm going to give you purpose. Remember, just days before this, all his friends deserted him. They all abandoned him. Why doesn't he say to them, now you're going to get punishment. Now, you know, you ruined me. You know why he doesn't say that? It's because they didn't ruin him. Even the worst of what they did, that's not what ruined him. There was a greater abandonment that he experienced. One that totally destroyed him. One that took him to the depths of hell. When the disciples abandoned him, and he got the torture, and he got the pain, and he got the mocking, and the bleeding, and the thorns, and the nails, Jesus never said a word. Isaiah chapter 53 said he was led like a lamb to slaughter, and yet like a lamb he was silent. But Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, you have turned your face away from me. Now I'm rejected. Now I'm abandoned. I've been left for dead. I've lost access. I've lost access. In other words, my father is no longer present. And he's crying out. He's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, no one is calling out and recognizing me here. No one's recognized me. He's lost his name. I've lost myself. The father has left his son. I've lost the center of my worth, the center of my being. I'm no longer known. I've lost his approval. I'm no longer in the father. The Trinity, God and his son, has been torn apart. And thus, he says, I have no family. I have no name. I have no community. He's saying, I'm seeking you. My God, my God, why have you been? I'm seeking you. And yet, no one has called out to me. I've lost meaning, the center of my worth. I've lost my God. And yet, do you know, he still calls him my God. Do you see that? Look at the faith of Christ. Look at the, the, the surrender of Christ. He says, I've lost my power. I have no more gifts. God has completely departed from me. I'm lost. But do you get it? He says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I surrender. He's still trusted to the end. Look at the faithfulness of Christ. All out of his love. Look at the faithfulness of Christ. He's still trusted, even in his darkest place. Even when God has completely left him, he believed. He said, my God, my God. Friends, this 
loss. This is the loss that became the, our ultimate victory. The cross is not a symbol of hope. It's the reality of hope. It means the manger, the birth of Christ, it's not just a symbol of victory. It's the reality of our victory. How many thrones are there on earth? Very, very few. How many mangers are there? There are many mangers. Jesus was born in a manger to show us that many, all of us, can experience the reality of the power of God that comes with Christmas. Christmas is about the power of God, his power. Jesus surrendered intimacy with his father so that we could have intimacy. Jesus surrendered his identity, his name, so that we could have a name. Jesus surrendered his meaning. Why? So that we can have meaning. Jesus surrendered his, his strength, his power. Why? So that we could have the Spirit. He says, receive the Spirit. A Christian has the power of the resurrection in the power of the Holy Spirit that raised the, Jesus Christ from the dead. But if you re- recite the Apostles' Creed, one of the most long-lasting creeds in Christendom, if you recite the Apostles' Creed, there's one line that says, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. You know, you know that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that brought Jesus into the world. That's the power that resides in us. And it's in union with, that, with Christ we have that power, the power of the resurrection. That power is the power of the incarnation. That birth is the power for our new birth. These are the gifts that Jesus brings. These are the spoils of his victory. When you celebrate Christmas this week, remember Christ. Look at the faithfulness of Jesus. Look at the love of Christ. Look at the goodness of Christ. I mean, a lot of us, we come to church and we think, I've been, I've not thought about God all week. I've lived a godless life all week. And we think, we just come in and our, like the disciples, our tails are between our legs. And we come and we sit down and we say, now I've got to be extra pious. A lot of us kind of turn to piety, you know, because now I've got to be extra pious. Look at Jesus. Look at the love of Christ. He says, peace. Peace. I'm empowering you. I'm sending you. You live apart from me, yes, you've run. Apart from me, yes, you're weak. Apart from me, yes, you're scared. Apart from me, you're craving all sorts of things. But I will empower you and send you. That is an amazing thing. Look at the power of Christ. Only he can do that. When you celebrate Christmas, remember Christ. When you celebrate and observe his birth, remember that it points to his death. And when you do, when you see that and when you take that in, it will shape your life in a way that it will transform you. So new, to make you so new, we call it the new birth. You have a new life. That's victory. Will you trust that? Let's pray.